Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast, part two episode. Stop right now if you haven't listened to part one. It is real good. So good, in fact, and I think you agree if you listen to it, right? I certainly loved the conversation so much that I came back the following day and had this talk that you're about to hear. So I think you're really going to like it, uh, even if you like it. A fraction as much as I did. What a terrific conversation. Guys, I got uh, Cincinnati coming up June 1st for Stand Up Science, and uh, as well as in um, toward the end of June, Cedar Falls, Des Moines, Iowa, then Wichita, Oklahoma City, Kansas City, Omaha, and Kansas City, Missouri, by the way, uh, uh, all in July, maybe doing a couple other Midwest things. Um, summer can be brutal for comedy, so I don't want to risk doing too many shows and end up um, losing money on them or something. But I don't know. It might be a, a good time for stand-up science. We'll find out. This will be a good sample. Um, so, uh, guys, I want to thank you so much because I have been getting emails from many of you for venue suggestions for stand-up science. As I said, um, I've been looking for around 150-seat venues anywhere in the country. I'm, I'm going to be, the plan is, uh, get a van, travel around, doing stand-up science everywhere. I am super excited about the idea. It's going to take a lot of work, and one of the work one of the things that is difficult is finding good venues. I've, I've things I've, I've get a hold of local comics everywhere and and um, and stuff like that. And I have established a lot of relationships in the past, but there's a lot of cities I've I've never been to that are that have good colleges and everywhere else really. As long as there's a college that I can get scientists from, it doesn't necessarily even need to be the biggest college in the world or anything like that. Um, and it's not too crazy small of a city. I mean, I did, uh, Sonoma with the show not too long ago. I think that's like 10,000 people, probably less than that. And so, you know, I do, I do small towns here and there as well. And I, I like doing those areas too. And, but anyway, I put out a request for you guys to email me and go to the here we are podcast.com website and, and there's the contact page. And suggestions have been coming in from you guys, and I've been forwarding them along to my manager. I hope I wrote you back to thank you, but, but I've been getting all of them. I've been sending them along, and, uh, and I've been impressed and surprised by, um, by the amount of feedback. Really encouraging because, one, it's super helpful. Uh, and two, just um, how much interest you you guys have in um, in in seeing this show and uh, and helping me out, and I'm real excited about that. We we always, you know, all all these podcasts. I'm, I'm sure this isn't the only podcast you listen to. If it is, don't don't listen to other ones, guys. This is the only one worthwhile. Um, but you know, you listen to other podcasts and. Every comic, every radio station, you know, we're all trying to get you to do a thing. And it's, you know, it certainly helps us all out when you leave reviews and you know, help us promote the shows and, you know, follow us on the uh, social media, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all that. And it's all incredibly helpful. And 
you know, a lot of times we were asking you to do stuff like that and, you know, it comes up short a little bit, you know, you start a new relationship, a partner, like the, the Libro.fm partnership is off, is off. We got some subscribers rolling in offer code. Here we are podcast. And it's a great partnership no matter what, but there hasn't been like tons of people signing up just yet. I think you guys are missing out. Audiobooks are awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, or you, you try to get more reviews from people and you get like one a month and you just, you wish you got more, but I'm, I'm, I'm also a human. I'm also a consumer. I don't leave reviews at every thing uh, I've, I've don't fully uh, support every single artist and person and TV show and everything that I'm into as much as I uh, probably could. It's probably a good reminder for me to do more of that. And, um, and we all only have so much time. We only have so much to give necessarily. And, and so I get it. And I say all that, not, not complaining, but to, uh, to say thank you so much because the, 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 um, responses that I have gotten in my requests for venues for stand-up science has uh, at least matched, if not exceeded, my expectations. And please, please keep them coming in. I am, we have, you know, a whole Google map with all these suggestions pinned. It's going to take a long time to figure out the routing and establish some of these deals and and everything else. It's all going to take time. I'm not going to be in your city uh, you send me a venue, I'm not going to be there in two weeks. Um, you know, it'll take a while. Maybe it won't even be till next year. Who knows? But I am trying to line up a huge fall tour and get to as many places as I can. And so that is really, really helpful. So thank you so much for doing that. Any ideas that you have, again, a little, little theaters, we're looking at like 100 to 250 seats, depending on um, the venue, uh, up to up to 300 people, but really about 150, I would say, is the optimal size. Um, my my hope is always to sell out every show. I, I'd rather do a 150 venue and sell it out than have 200 people at a 300 seat venue. Um, I just uh, it's just a different vibe, and everyone gets excited and. And, um, and then people plan ahead and buy presale tickets more the next time, which saves me tons in marketing. And I can, if, if I know the rooms are going to be full, that, that just creates a lot of opportunity, um, for me. So looking at about 150, looking for that kind of vibe, small theater, like a side room in a brewery, but even like there, there's a lot of cool, um, indie spaces, Music venues out there, cool community theaters, improv spaces, stuff like that. Some traditional comedy clubs do work on off nights. My main thing is I don't want people expecting a 100% comedy show. It's two comics and two scientists on each show. It's half comedy, half science. There's two scientists giving two science talks. I don't want someone like sitting there like... What's going on? Why aren't there punchlines? Because uh, 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 they're in a comedy club and, and that's what they 
thought the whole show was was going to be um, and now they're freaking out because they have to learn something for 12 minutes that is not what I'm trying to grow and build here I want something for us for the people that listen to this podcast um, that that like some humor like some learning um, and have some more higher elevated content along the way so thank you guys for that and and keep them coming and enjoy today's episode are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast today is part two of charan raganath who is joining me? Who said that's close enough to his last? And why am I good enough for government work? So... Oh man! Tell people what shade my face is right now. Uh, it's I guess like, it's like a... a scarlet hue. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I am. I mean, it's a. It, it, believe me, this is. Don't take it personally. Yeah. It's a running joke on this podcast that I am. <laughs> the worst person at pronouncing names well, on i have one the of the worst names of that people could pronounce so. so we are a perfect match um right. so this is the second time no third time i've ever done a two-part episode where i've gotten done and i was like what the heck we didn't even get to any of your stuff we were just <laughs> having you know like this happens a lot where we like to lay down some uh, just we start a general conversation about neuroscience and memory yeah. and that sort of thing and just had a great went off on all sorts of wonderful tangents and uh got to the end of the episode went longer than an hour um which usually 45 minutes to an hour and and i still hadn't even really talked about any of the stuff that even showed me beforehand (laughs) and so i'm so happy that uh that you had the time to come back again today and i this is going to be so silly if we end up doing the exact same thing again yeah because i do have just before we get specifically into your work again i've been reflecting on our conversation uh yesterday for listeners this will be one week ago so now they haven't heard it for a while so don't feel bad about repeating anything i want some of this stuff repeated okay i was thinking about the stuff we were talking about with curiosity oh yeah you got me curious about curiosity and it's just been like it just like you talked about that, you know, when when you're in that curious mindset, yeah, it just creates. How are we articulating it? More like a broad, generalized interest in kind of like surrounding uh, things, kind of associated, yeah, w- with it, but but like more broadly associated, yeah, um, and its effect on just kind of, uh, it, you're just inspired more as a whole yeah um so can you kind of briefly recap that in a way because i i had a few more questions <laughs> regard i mean it it's curiosity is i think one of the finest of human qualities and traits and it's some i always thank my listeners for being curious people at the end yeah. of every episode i think it is uh one of one of the single most important things uh in in life and what makes life worth living what makes uh, uh, bettering ourselves and everything else much easier to do so if you can recap some of that yeah yeah well it's funny because until 
you know, curiosity has been studied by a lot of people in education, but in, you know, kind of more neuroscience, people hadn't studied it much because it was just seen as this kind of flaky topic. Like, you know, what is curious? It's just something somebody feels. We don't care about that. You know, how and boring so, are the people that aren't curious about <laughs> curiosity? I mean, yeah. How? Well, so I'll admit I was one of them. Because, oh, like, really? I was. Well, so well, initially. No, no, no. Okay. It's true. I was very I was very like I was very narrow sighted about it. And my uh, I had a postdoc in my lab named Matthias Gruber, who's now at Cardiff University. And what Matthias told me is, is that we had got this way of studying curiosity where we give people trivia questions and we can look at how that affects brain activity and we can look when people are curious about the answer to a trivia question, do they remember it better? And so I said, okay, well, of course, people who are curious about something will remember it better. This isn't very interesting. Right. Uh, and uh, so I wasn't that excited about it, but I did say... But it would be interesting if you can show that, in fact, being curious helps you learn things that you weren't even curious about, but it just happened to be going on while you're trying to find the information, right? So it's like you're watching a suspenseful TV show and it's a commercial break because you don't have it on Netflix or whatever, right? And so yeah. it's a commercial break. You're dying to find out what happened and they're showing you these commercials. And, and, these and now you're like, I need bounty. Oh, that's it. So that's why it's... Exactly. Not uh, brawny. It's got to be bounty. <laughs> right. I forget which one is the quicker picker upper. I think it's actually. bounty. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll ask Midge or whatever about that. <laughs> Maybe she's Palm Olive. But... Oh, man. Well, you just <laughs> took... That just took... The things to like a really depressing level of my, because you you just uh, right away right off the bat that's an example of how our curiosity gets exploited sometimes it is right but it, it's uh i mean i think but it's still it, very interesting it's still very interesting but i mean you know and we didn't know nobody really had known whether you know you'd want to be advertising during that period of suspense when people can't wait to find out the information and so we did this. Hmm. Matthias had done some work, and you know, initially I wasn't sure how it's going to turn out, but it looked like, in fact, when people are curious, you can stick things in there that are just irrelevant. People learn it better. So hmm. we did this experiment where we had people, we gave people a bunch of trivia questions. And I know last time you had said, you know, I'm not interested in trivia. It's all boring to me, which is true. Hmm. But one person's trivia is another person's. That's the thing that they like. So. You know, again, if uh, some kind oh, of, you know, you've screw studied off with your factoids. Give me a concept. <laughs> Give me something I can play around with. Gosh, darn it. Well, so imagine you had spoken to uh, somebody about memory before. And I was like saying, you know, Sapolsky did this study on Ooh. stress and memory, but he didn't talk to you about it. And you'd be like, I got to find out about this. Right? right, right. But many other people might be like, yeah, I don't care. You right, know? right, so, right. Well, I mean, I still, uh, I'm, I'm still going on record saying the things that I'm interested in are the most interesting, interesting of things, and exactly. other people's preferences aren't as important. So, well, there's kind of this inverted U because it's like if you don't know anything about a topic, you're not very curious right, because right. it's in a way part of it is there's got and you know I told you this before it's right. like a good storyteller, a good journalist, a good uh, teacher will really just intuitively knows this is that what you want to do is you want to highlight this gap in someone's knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, basically you kind of have to have a certain degree of knowledge to expect that you're going to know everything. Mm -hmm. And then you find out, wait, there's something I don't know. I got to figure this out, you know? Uh -huh. And that's at least one of the ways that you trigger curiosity. And so, you know, in, in the case of 
trivia questions. It's just kind of a silly way of doing it, but you can do more effective ways. You know, we do this in our daily life all the time, right? So, well, now that you say it like that, I'm wondering what is curiosity in terms of now it almost sounds like a intellectual motivation or something it sounds much in the same way like you make a new year's resolution yeah you want to have something that is like kind of just out of reach from where you are now but but reachable accessible challenging not too overwhelming yeah yeah and same with like getting a promotion at work so this is kind of like this we have this hedonic treadmill and all of these various aspects of our life and and so it sounds like curiosity is kind of fitting that oh absolutely and in fact it drives a lot of the same brain systems, the same neural systems hmm. that are driven by other kinds of treadmill-y type things in the world, like getting rewards or, you know, um, which or, you know, uh, drugs of abuse or some the sex drugs and rock and roll, you know. So, yeah, um, I mean, I will say that like dopamine, essentially. Right. And so one of the interesting things about dopamine is that it actually helps memories to stabilize. So, Basically, you know, you might experience a lot of things during the day, but some of them stick around and most of them you won't remember later on. And so one of the interesting things about dopamine is it helps these memories stick. It helps stabilize synaptic plasticity. And so one of the things that's uh, cool is that we found when people were in this curious state, we see this increase in activity in the areas of the brain that process dopamine. But it's not so much when people get the answer to the question. It's when they get the question. And so... It's not about, we talked about this before, it's not about saying, hey, this is great, I found the answer. It's about, ugh, this is unpleasant, I gotta find the answer. It's like this craving, right? Yeah. And it's a craving, it's an intellectual right, craving. Right, these days, right. Well, this is what I was going to talk about too, was because, and sorry, I feel like I'm yeah. cutting you off no, a lot okay. now, but... You're probably, but um, you gotta do this, otherwise it's gonna be like part three, part four. Uh, yeah, no, no, it probably will be anyway. Um, but I was, I was thinking about how like... I'm always, and I've talked about this before, um, if not on this podcast, I have this silly podcast on Patreon called the Everything Podcast. I just talk about life once in a while. Anyhow, um, I talk about how like I'm kind of a junkie for like that next epiphany. Mm -hmm. I'm always chasing that next like aha moment or when I read something new where I'm like, whoa, where I have that like perspective changing paradigm shift. And it's uh, like I've had we've we talked about what rebels we were in the the last episode. I've had a I've had a a thrill seeking, adventurous, sensation seeking life. And, you know, I've also I'm not bragging. I've paid dearly for it as well. I've had injuries and credit card debt and failed relationships and everything else. But yeah, I've done all the yeah. jumping off things, uh, skydiving, I rock climb, I do all the you know uh, drugs, everything. Uh-huh. And I'll tell you, there is a no drug that consistently gets me like that kind of aha yeah. moment. Nothing else feels like that to me. Yeah. But it feels like a drug to me. It has that same sort of sensation. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's when you're, when you get this satisfaction of the curiosity, but it's that the interesting part to me is that state where you're, you need the information, but you don't have it. Right. Mm -hmm. And what's kind of cool is we found if you just, while people need the information, you just show people a face, let's say they're better at remembering that face later on. 
even though the face has nothing to do with what it is they're trying to learn. Now, that's kind of a nerdy lab example, but I mean, you can imagine how this works in real life, right? It's like, again, you write a, you know, an article, let's say for some website or something like that, or you, you know, you're doing a speech or something and you get people started on something that they want to know the answer to. And then you give them a lot of other stuff Mm. and then you give them the answer. They're going to remember it a lot better than if you ask them a question and then you answer it and then you just blah, blah, blah for another 20 minutes, right? Hmm. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 8989. Enjoy. Hey guys, Randy and Jason here. And whether you're working from home or working on your fitness, you want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to. Not yeah, you don't want to catch like glimpses and uh, little snippets of like what snippets? other- Snippets? You know what I'm of what your kids are listening to or anyone else. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you go dropping hundreds of bucks on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. They are amazing. I yes. got my Raycon earbuds. They so cancel out everything. Raycon earbuds start for about a half price of the other ones. Premium wireless earbuds on the market and they sound just as amazing as the top uh, audio brands you know. The newest model, the Everyday E25 Airbuds, are their best ones yet. Jay, I love these uh, so much. I'm using it nonstop, right? Six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth playing, more bass, more compact design, gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. I like that if you have one of them in, you can just hear use one of them. For They're a stylish and discreet. I love these so much. Now's the time to get a pair of the latest and the greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order by Raycon.com. Uh, slash Starburns. That's by B-U-I, Raycon.com, R-A-Y-C-O-N.com, slash Starburns for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. I love these earbuds so much. I know you do too. I'm all about them, man. They're they're my reach. You know what you feel when you reach for them and that's and you the thing you reach them. for and that's my hike. Those are my hike earbuds. Those are I my hike. walking earbuds. By B-U-I, R-A-Y-C-O-N.com, slash Starburns for 15% off. You know, so one of the things that was interesting to us is that the dopaminergic activity was triggered so much by the question. And then while people were waiting for the answer, they were in this kind of state where you could they could suck in other information, right? Huh. I wonder if this is part of why... Like peacocking kind of uh, uh, kind of works where, you know, from an evolutionary psychology perspective, it's a lot of like, well, you're incurring this cost on yourself of like looking ridiculous or whatever. And, and because you don't care, that's advertising that you're confident and you must be confident because you have valuable traits and a high value, blah, blah, blah. But maybe it's, uh, it could be something completely different working here where someone has like this crazy twirly hipster mustache. And at first you go like, well, that's a ridiculous mustache. And then you're like, 
I kind of want to talk to this guy. And then, <laughs> and then like, and then they, and then you like, I, th- I think probably if you're generally curious, you could get to know anyone and be interested in them. I imagine mm-hmm. most people, uh, uh, but just like having something like odd like that, that yeah. like triggers this, what's going on there. Yeah. Um, it makes you more interested in someone or something more broadly. Yeah. Uh, Matthias and I have a theory that we're working on. We're writing it up right now where the idea is, is that, you know, our brains aren't necessarily designed just to say, here's what's happening right now. They really want us to make sense of the environment. And so they're really trying, our brains are constantly trying to figure out what's coming up next, what's coming up next. And so if you predict something and something happens, that's a little bit out of whack, unexpected, Mm. that triggers this response, we think. And that response could lead you to say, okay, the world is scary. I need to hide. Or that response could trigger you, oh, this is interesting. I need to find out more information. If you know, and you could imagine this like with a math problem, right? You know, some people get a math problem and they don't know the answer and they're like, oh, I'm terrible at math. I'm anxious. I don't want to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And some people say, oh, I got to find the answer to this and I'm going to keep working on it, working on it till I solve the problem. And so part of it is that prediction error where you think you should know something and you don't. And then the second part is, okay, what am I going to do with this to kind of like, how am I going to respond? Am I going to respond with anxiety? Well, it turns out the hippocampus, which is an area that's important for memory, has also been implicated in anxiety. And those same regions of the hippocampus are turned on when people are in a curious state or when they get prediction errors, when things violate what they expect. And one of the interesting things that people find is, is that um, this was work, one of my po- former postdocs, Debbie Hanula, did some of this, and Neil Cohen at Illinois, and Jen Ryan at Toronto have done this stuff where you just have people look around at pictures, let's say. And what you find is, and this is not at all unusual for people who study children or for people who study you know, non-human animals and stuff like that. People will, like, so a mouse, if you put a mouse in a new place, it will often explore if, it, if it's not scared, it's going to explore and sniff around everything. But you put it in a place it's been before, it doesn't do that. Humans explore the world with our eyes. And so we'll just look around naturally at all of these things that, you know, and try to suck in the information. Without your even knowing it, though, if you're in a familiar place, mm-hmm. your eye movements will change a lot. And you won't look at as many things. And you go from a mode of exploring to basically just checking and making sure everything where it's supposed to be. And so we've done these studies, but other people did it first, where you can take a picture of a place that people already know, and then you move something around so that it's no like one of the objects has been moved. And this actually happened to me personally in my own life, where I had walked in, I used to live in Berkeley when I was an undergraduate, and Berkeley was pretty scuzzy back then. And so we like actually found poo on my porch once. <laughs> it was that scuzzy. Well, that uh, is that's a curious it was situation. Human, it was human well, poo. But, how did this happen? But the odd thing was, I lived in Berkeley, and so yeah. it wasn't that curious actually. Right. But um, but we uh, I came in once, and the door was unlocked. But that's unusual. And then um, something felt wrong to me, but I didn't know what it was, and it turned out that my furniture was in the wrong places. And so I kind of was in this weird mental state where I'm like, something's wrong. And then I start, you know, becoming conscious of it. And I look around, I'm right. like, wait a minute. And it turned out we got robbed, you know? Uh, and actually the story is a little bit more interesting, but I'll save you the interesting part. <laughs> so, I mean, the point is, is that somehow, and you can see this in more mundane experience, you just move something from where people expect it to be. 
And what you find is people's eyes gravitate towards it. And sometimes they won't even be aware of the change, but their eyes will move towards it. And the hippocampus is directly related to your ability to do that, right? Because part of generating these predictions is having some memory for the past. And that's what's so cool about memory we talked about before, is that part of what we, you know, if you think about going back to evolution, one of the things that's so important about memory is not, oh, yeah, I remember you and I had this podcast yesterday. It was so great. I mean, that's nice, right? But that's not going to keep me from getting eaten by a saber-toothed tiger or something. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, being able to use something that happened just once to predict what's likely to happen in the future, that's power, right? You're going to be able to know, oh, there's fruit at this tree. I better go back to it. Or, oh, wait, this is a place where, you know, uh, I got into a car accident. I better be careful, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these are the kinds of things that we want to be able to do. And when things violate those predictions, you, you know, information is valuable, right? And it makes sense in some ways that, you know, I can give you like, let's say some you know, I'll give you a beer or something and you'll get this dopamine response. You'll say, oh, well, this makes me feel good, right? But Or, you know, I want this beer. You get a big dopamine response. But I can also tell you, hey, there's a place here where anytime you're in Davis, you can get free beers if you go to this particular spot. But you got to find it. You'll be curious. And you'll be curious for a reason because, I mean, okay, beer is a bad example. But in terms of, you know, your brain's wanting to be able to say, well, this information has valuable value mm-hmm. to me because if I get the information... The next time around, I will be able to get not just one beer, but as much beer as I want, right? Mm -hmm. So information has value in some ways that's even more important than immediate things like money or, you know, food or water, right? Mm. And so that's what we think, you know, is so special about curiosity. Hmm. And that's part of what uh, makes this podcast so very valuable because of all this free information. Here's what I like about this podcast. There's a moment where you're like, I'm going to skip past everything that's interesting about this story to get to the important (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Um, uh, So, and I swear we're eventually getting to your work uh i have well, more follow-up questions okay. this is some here work i have more follow-up questions um uh, my, my curiosity is going out of control right, right now good. so a couple things one how do you uh you may not have a good answer for this and that's totally fine but how do you is there a way to embed curiosity in mundane kind of experiences that you don't want to you're stuck in your uh, you know boring cubicle job or the worst part of your job or you know i gotta like do my taxes i filed an extension i've been putting this off i just can't sit down in front of the excel spreadsheet and go through my receipts and all that and is there any way of i mean i know there's like a lot of this is kind of mindfulness and meditation is talking about like, uh, you go like, Oh, this is so boring that I have to do this right now. And then you go, Ooh, that's kind of interesting that I noticed how boring this is. Be curious about your boredom. uh, Right. Exactly. Is that, I mean, are there any other kind of approaches that Mm -hmm. people can use to try to embed a little more curiosity into their lives? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, we're, we're still 
early in this research. And, you know, obviously mm -hmm. we're more interested in the memory part of it than what is curiosity, although part of understanding this memory effect is understanding what is curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, so we are curious about that. Mm -hmm. But, m you know, more often than not, it's about finding the gaps. You know, there's always gaps. I find this, you know, I'll talk to people in my field who will say, well, we've pretty much run our course. We know everything that there is to know about the basic stuff about memory. And at this point, we're hitting the wall because we don't really... Oh, what? Yeah, exactly. Come on. And, you know, I tell my students that there's a question, there's always questions out there. It's just people don't see it. And you just have to, you know, you just have to look for the things that people that are invisible to people, right? Yeah. And so I think that's kind of the, uh, that's the challenge is being able to find the things that are unexpected, but often the things that are unexpected, we're not seeing them in the first place because we're so, you know, it's like I said, when you walk into a familiar room, you're looking at things and sort of checking, are they all where they're supposed to be? But sometimes those expectations can be so strong. It's just, you're bored because you don't see what's right in front of you sometimes. Right. You know, like uh, I lived in uh, Cambridge when I was on sabbatical in England. And it was one of these things where I would walk you know, the same path every day to the office where I was at. But I started to look, you know, and the rain was terrible and it was cold. <laughs> there were a lot of problems. But at one point I was like, you know, getting ready, you know, my last couple of months. And I would start looking up at the, you know, just looking around at the buildings. Every building would have some detail, some weird gargoyle, some, you know, beautiful little sculpture, some plaque about somebody who made some major scientific discovery. And it was just everywhere, but I just wasn't looking at it, right? So sometimes it's a matter of being, you know, forcing yourself to look and see. And that's where the mindfulness part, I think, is really relevant because, you know, even with something like breathing, people, I, I fail at this, I'm terrible at this, but, you know, even something as simple and repetitive, you can see variants and that's surprising, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can barely make it to a 10 count without my brain <laughs> drifting off in a million different directions. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, we definitely, you know, on, on the one hand, we it seems like we have these kind of pattern recognition, efficiency-based processors yeah. in, in our heads that are trying to recognize the important patterns in our life and not necessarily work more than... They have to, and and so it makes a whole lot of sense that you, if you're taking the same walk to work or through Cambridge or whatever, yeah, each day that you would kind of not really pay any attention, like what you know, on some level, why take in any new information if probably there's not even if there is a gargoyle up there, is that necessarily going to help your life in a, in a way? So yeah. so yeah, I, I guess there is having to force it a little bit. And, and I, as you say all this, I'm like, you know, I spend too much time. I think we all do, or many of us indoors. I, I often I'll get to, you know, my hotel room might be different. My mm -hmm. Airbnb might be different, something like that. But uh, I can be a, quite a hermit and I spend a lot of time indoors. And, mm -hmm. and um, I, I guess this is the importance of just getting outside and walking around a bit. Yeah. Um, but that certainly helps. I mean, in some sense, I mean, 
So people used to think this is different, but I actually think it's very much the same thing as like when you explore a new place, that's driving, in my opinion, a similar effect as being curious about a particular topic. So we talked about curiosity as being intellectual, but sometimes curiosity can also be just the pure act of exploring something that you've never seen before, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you and I both travel a lot. And so there's something, there's a, it's like a palpable feeling you get when you're walking around a place that you've never been before, right? And that, especially if it's completely unfamiliar to you, you know, airport, uh, you know, Hyatt hotels, they all look alike at some point, but you start to go out onto the streets and you start to go into shops and things. And there's this little feeling of arousal, excitement that you get, you know, and sometimes for some people it can be anxiety provoking, right? But it can also be kind of, you know, like when I travel, I can't sleep. It's like, I'm just amped. It's probably mm. from just being in a new bed, you know, but it's like that exploration almost certainly drives the same systems in my opinion. Mm. And, uh, in fact, mm. these are some of the oldest theories in, you know, um, uh, uh, Lynn Adell, who wrote this book called the hippocampus as a cognitive map. He was basically saying, well, the hippocampus, you know, evolved to memory as part of this general purpose system of kind of figuring out where things are in our world and navigating our world. And one of the important things that you need to do if you're building a map of your world is figure out when things change. And when things change or when things are new, you want to motivate the organism to explore those things mm. so that you expand your map, right? And, you know, I think in humans, at least, the hippocampus does more than mapping and I have some disagreements about some of the theories. But I think that idea is really supported by lots of scientific evidence. And I think it's related to that, you know, exhilaration that you can get from curiosity. Mm. And in fact, there's actually a really cool study that was done by Richard Morris at the University of Edinburgh. And what he did was he had these animals learn, okay, you go to this spot in this box and you, you know, go into a hole and you can get some cheese. And they learn in a couple of trials that there's different holes that have cheese and they figure out where the holes are that have cheese. And they learn that pretty quickly. But they also forget it pretty quickly, too. So what he did was he said, okay, well, let's put these animals into a new box that they've never been to before right after they did the learning. So they explore, they get the, the cheese, they do their tricks, they know this place. But then you put them in a brand new place right afterwards. Then you test their memory a day later, let's say, for where, these, where the cheese was. And they show much, much better retention of where the cheese was than if they just did something boring right after they went to their home cage. Hmm. So in other words, having this new place to be curious about and explore actually saved a memory from something that happened even beforehand. Hmm. And so that's how powerful these effects can be. And he even found that if you give a drug to the animal that blocks dopamine, you lose this effect. So it's probably related to that dopamine release that happens during, you know, exploration. Hmm. That is fascinating. Oh man, this is uh, this is one of those things I'm just gonna have to remind myself of, and and uh, it, because it seems like you can use some of this to just be slightly more mindful to set yourself up in a way to where. I, I'm all about just trying to set up your life so that your your subconscious, non-conscious, unconscious, whatever we're mm -hmm. calling it. it. By the way, can we just like come up with a 
new word or like ultra, <laughs> ultra conscious or something and then we're no more debate over what we're calling it um <laughs> fine with me I'm no <laughs> but uh setting up a life in a way so that that your your subconscious is doing a lot of the heavy lifting for you mm-hmm. if you're if you're doing things if you're if you're staying if you're having to do uh whatever projects that you maybe don't like and you're you're getting a little burnt out with this and that work project but rather than just going and passing out afterwards if you listen to a stimulating podcast read a book something like that yeah maybe this is increasing your memory and productivity and creativity just more broadly yeah yeah that's i mean you know this is a little bit beyond what i know about Mm. exactly but i would i think that seems pretty reasonable Hmm. and this is uh to to stretch even more beyond what what, uh, (laughs) (laughs) i promise we'll get to your work Uh, (laughs) um look at what a great conversation we're having though i feel like the longer we go without talking about it the the more like natural it seems to be so anyhow uh uh, minus me commenting on it every three minutes um so uh, there seems to be um a big social variable with this stuff as well because uh, you know especially when i first started traveling on the oh my gosh getting on a plane to go to some new city this is just like the most exciting thing and oh to be a road comic to travel around and see oh wow how exciting and now i'm just like oh great let's see what this burger king looks like in nebraska like i don't you know it just all looks the same after a while unless like I have someone with me if I'm dating a new girl, if I'm you know with a friend, I bring a comic on the road with me or something like that. It really or your favorite restaurant. I spend a lot of time by myself and I love eating out. I like going to restaurants by myself and and uh, but like when you get to bring a friend who's visiting or whatever yeah. and bring them, it, that seems like you have like this kind of fresh set of eyes on things as well. So it seems like there's just there, there's a lot of ways to trigger curiosity if, yeah. if it's something that you become more mindful of. Okay, so let's talk about your work. <laughs> um, let, let's, uh, wait, why don't you, I'm not sure exactly where to start. You showed me several uh, fun things that you do yesterday. Where do you want to start? I'll let, I'll, I've been steering the ship for now one and a half uh episodes <laughs> of the here we are podcast why, why don't you take the wheel for a little bit all right well i probably wasn't good at getting to the point which is why we've gone on so oh long, no that's been terrific well so actually i mean it, i think this actually runs right from where we're talking about Great. because we're talking about you know we on the one hand our brains are like trying to figure out what's going to happen right and we're trying to generate these predictions but how do we get that knowledge in the first place? That's one of the big questions we're starting to ask. So we uh, just got this you know, um, big project that we're working on to basically say, how can we develop smart artificial intelligence that can use information about the context to kind of make intelligent predictions about what things are likely to happen and to make them more effective learners as a result, you know? And so we've all had times where you're working Siri on your iPhone or you're working with some other, you know, AI thing that is basically supposed to be helping you, but they just have no clue about what it is you're talking about. Right. 
And the reason they don't have a clue and, you know, you could talk to a child and they would figure out what you're doing, but these AI agents don't. And part of the reason is, is that they're not making assumptions. They're not built to make assumptions about the way the world is structured. Mm. They're mostly taking in training data and just pulling out patterns, right? And that's in some sense a good model for how the brain works, but there's the amount of information in the world. It's like there's just so many dimensions, right? So what's the what's the different kinds of information you could pull out? So part of what our lab is working on is, well, what are the different kinds of mental representations of an event can you get? You know, information about who was in an event or what was the situation versus where did it happen? And what we can see is while people are, let's say, watching a movie or something, we can see that in real time, these different networks of the brain are taking apart that information and being able to go, okay, well, here's this information about being in an office, and here's this information about Shane's face, and here's this information about podcasts and you know what's likely to happen there. And one of the things that's that we're developing in, in collaboration with others on our team is this idea that there's different timescales that are important for prediction, right? So before you walked into the room, you could predict a lot about what's going to happen based on our last conversation yesterday. And before you walked into the room yesterday, you could make a lot of predictions about what's likely to happen based on your previous podcasting experience. And everyone does this. It's so this ability to, you know, this clairvoyance that we all have, this ability to predict the future, it's not at all like parapsychology. We all do it to the point where we don't even think about it, right? And you only think about it when something completely unexpected happens, right? Like uh, um, like yesterday you mentioned dick jokes, and that doesn't have come up a lot in my office. You know? so it's like, <laughs> oh, come on. There's got to be a few dick jokes around <laughs> here. I mean, speaking of memory, when you like make things like very graphic and whatnot, they become more salient and more memorable, you know? The, the idea of like you have the the um grocery store list to remember so you make up some graphic story of of the of the things that you need to remember and you retain that list better uh i i'm sure a few dick jokes would would uh, uh would do uh be a little bit of a memory boost for some well people. there's a whole lot of reasons why that might happen but you know especially in this context in sure. the situation of you know kind of like if i'm doing a media interview it usually doesn't right, right 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 and right. so that's kind of a, hey, that stands out because this isn't something right. that happens in the usual, you know, things where I'm trying to, sure. I mean, let me explain how memory works. Oh, <laughs> dick jokes, okay. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's one of these. It's this a, is, I, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to create that gap, that yeah. space, that curiosity. I'm, I'm trying to make things accessible enough to certain people that might, might not otherwise be like, well, the neuroscience of memory, why would I be interested in that? Well, here's a dick joke okay <laughs> <laughs> see what i'm doing with that i, see, I saw exactly what you're doing <laughs> see, so th but that's fascinating right because i actually know somebody here and if i were to talk to her and actually it was just about half an hour ago she was telling me a joke that was like very much like yeah like what uh actually it was a specific joke that was like on the one hand, with most people, it would have just been out of the blue, but from her, it was completely expected. <laughs> it, was yeah, just, right. it was just part of my schema for how we would interact and I what see. I would expect with her, right? 
Now, what's interesting is, is that you can extract that kind of knowledge even from one particular experience. Try to hmm. train like a computer to do that. It's very hard and we don't hmm. know why. And so one of the things we're studying is, A, how do we pick up information? If you think about what you'd expect during one of your podcast interviews, it's an extraordinarily complicated set of information that you could pull up, right? Because you're talking about you expect things to happen in a particular order. We're going to start off getting to know each other. Then we're going to get into a little bit of the work. Then you might ask a question that you're curious about. And there's certain things that can happen in different sequences. But in general, there's information about time. There's information about the kinds of topics that can come up. There's all of these expectations that you have that sort of constrain what it is that you know could be going on. And that's happening over the course of over an hour, right? So somehow your brain has to pull up that something that's happening right now can predict something that's going to happen 10 minutes from now or 20 minutes from now. That is amazing, right? And again, try to get a computer to do that, not easy. You know, you can do it. You just have to slam it with a lot of examples, right? And people are really good at this. And so we're trying to figure out why. Um, one of, we, we don't have all the answers yet, but one of the things we're starting to do. I, I'll say, because I, I bet I'm wrong, um, because to me, when you express this problem, this sounds to me like this is just a matter of complexity and our brains are just doing much, much higher levels of computation than what artificial intelligence is doing right now. And when you're making an inference, like what kind of, what kind of a joke could you predict this particular person to make? I mean, there's, that's, that's a really complex uh, bit of information that you're, uh, I mean, there's a lot going on there with, with that. And whereas like computers are barely even able to tell you if, like what you're looking at is a file cabinet or a door Yeah. right now. Well, it, actually, I will say that uh, I may be giving AI kind of a bad rap, both because I don't do it and because, right. uh, but uh, there's actually programs that will generate poetry. There's AI programs that will generate comedy routines, probably. There's, there's classical a, there's a, music on Spotify. There's a, uh, there's a whole album. Um, if you just like Google computer generated classical music on Spotify, it's, it's, uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you've got things like, uh, um, you know, there's one that does death metal, which is really, really? interesting to listen to actually, because <laughs> it does ca sound like music, but it's, it's actually a little bit more interesting than some death metal, but, huh. um, well, that's the bars. Not that high. <laughs> well, I, I used to like, I grew up in the Bay area, so I have kind of a soft spot for it, but, uh, I mean, I'll take some nine inch nails or system of a down or something like that outside of that. Like, come on. Yeah. I, for me, it's like Metallica. Or, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you a Metallica, but, um, but getting back to the point, <laughs> but those are, you give them lots of training examples of a specific kind of experience, you know, and they can be better at it than most people. You know I mean? AI is extraordinarily powerful at certain things. And there's a lot of things. I mean, you know, there's a company called Google DeepMind that's pioneering AI that is arguably based on some human brain processes. And, you know, they've created programs that can beat chess masters in chess, or there's this game called Go that's um, played around the world and they beat <laughs> the champions of Go. And so 
they it's not a complexity thing really so much as basically it's cons- it's a thing of how huh. big is the problem space so people are not as good at machines in uh, my opinion uh, wait, at, what, what do you mean by that when you say problem space what, what do so you so you are let's say going through life and there's all sorts of stuff that's happening and you're not necessarily consciously going around saying i need to learn about x Things are just happening all around you, and you can naturally start to pull up the statistics of what are li- what's likely to happen. So you've never been to a Greek restaurant. You're not necessarily trying to generate expectations. Next time I go into a Greek restaurant, I have to know what to expect. But you start to learn, okay, at the end of the restaurant, the o- I mean, at the end of the meal, the owner might give me ouzo or... You know, there might be a time where somebody orders cheese and it comes lit on and the waiter lights it on fire. Mm-hmm. Not a normal thing that happens in most restaurants, but it can happen at a Greek restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. The next time you go, you pick up those statistics. But why those and why not other things that are going on? I mean, the world has so much stuff going on. How is it that we're pulling out the stuff naturally from a not a lot of training instances that captures that structure of the world for things that happen I walk into the Greek restaurant and I already have some sense that 30 minutes from now, this one thing could happen. Mm-hmm. That's the problem space there is so large and people aren't trying to solve that problem. And that's what makes human thinking interesting is that we do pick up on it. And sometimes it backfires, right? There's lots of times where people make horrible errors of judgment. So Danny Kahneman, as we've talked about, did great work on this topic where people will generate these little mental scenarios about things and use that to determine what things are possible and what things aren't likely to happen, right? And so he did this famous experiment where he said, okay, uh, Linda's a free spirit and she likes to dress in colorful clothes. I, I might be missing some of the details of this experiment, but they describe this woman, Linda, has nothing to do with the problem they're asking. But then they say, how likely is it that Linda's a bank teller? People will say, oh, not that likely. Then they say, then he asks other people, how likely is it that Linda is a feminist and a bank teller? Far more people say that she's likely to be a feminist and a bank teller than just that, like, that she's likely mm-hmm. to be a bank teller. Now, the math doesn't work out there, right? right? It just doesn't. I mean, yeah. obviously, there's going to be more bank tellers than feminist bank tellers, right. even if a lot of them are. So the math doesn't work out. So people are making some kind of an error. And the error they're making is they're generating a little mental model where they're saying, okay, well, we know that she's likes dress and colorful clothes. We know she's extroverted. She's passionate. I can see, I could predict her being a feminist, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's a classic error in human thinking that also reflects, it's the bug, but it's also the feature, Right. Hmm. It a lot, and you know that's the kind of thing that makes human cognition interesting, right? It's like I told you this uh, yesterday that I got into psychology in part because people are horribly illogical, and that's why I never felt like I understood people very well. Mm-hmm. And that illogic though has its own logic to it, which right. is interesting. And you know, but we're what we're trying to figure out is what is that logic? How is it that people do this? You know, and so. Um, one of the things that we're finding is is that you know you have these specific experiences, but what we think happens during sleep, and we've got some very new research on this, and we're by no means the only lab that's looked at this, but one of the things that we've been finding is after sleep, people have the ability to put together things 
that they can't put together before sleep, you know, so they can remember things in a different way after sleep, like linking things that happen at different times, but are clearly related to each other. So um, we have an experiment, it's not written up yet, but it's an experiment, we call it the Kramer experiment, because of in Seinfeld, the old TV show, Kramer would walk in periodically, and he would say, you know, I just went to this great bagel shop, you know, and then 10 minutes later, he comes in, and he says, I just got banned from the bagel shop. Now I'm going to learn to make my own bagels. I don't think this was actually an episode. But <laughs> I'm just creating a little imaginary scenario here, right? I was like, are you just implanting <laughs> fictitious Seinfelds in my mind? This right is for now. part three. You remember that episode of Seinfeld? <laughs> well, that's actually another interesting thing. Yeah. So I'll get to that. Well, sure. Check tiger. No, I'll, I'll stay on topic. For We've now. talked about implanting and planting memories. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, uh, so when, uh, when you do this in kind of an experimental setting, people don't show any better memory for, let's say Kramer went to the bagel shop and then he's banned from the bagel shop. Then if Kramer went to the bagel shop and then later he decides he's going to buy a drone or something, I don't know, I just made this up. Right. And those two, in one case, this, the stories go together. In the other case, the stories don't go together. Turns out, if you test people immediately, it doesn't matter. People are equally good at remembering the two kinds of stories. But if you test a day later, two halves of a story that go together, even though they occurred apart, people put them together naturally much more effectively, and they remember them much better. It's a dramatic increase, actually. And it looks like, you know, we think that's dependent on sleep, that ability to, and we've got some other studies that also suggest that you know, we experience life in different events and they happen at different points in time. But somehow our brains have to be able to put that together to extract these kind of general knowledge things. And so what we think might happen is, is that we have to have the hippocampus saying, this event, this experience we're having right now is a one-time thing and it's separate from all these other things. But during sleep, all of these areas in the brain are talking to each other. And it allows us to say, well, this thing happened here and this thing happened at this other point in time. Maybe they're connected. Maybe there's some deeper structure to the universe, right? Mm. And you start to pick up these things. And what we can see is, is that different brain areas work on different time scales. So there's a guy named Uri Hassan at Princeton who's really advocated for this idea. And so uh, you might have interviewed people. Who, have you interviewed people who talked about the default network by any chance? Um, not really, okay. and I'm super interested in it. As okay. we mentioned, psychedelics in the last episode <laughs> it shuts down the default mode network, and and that's why there's so much kind of crosstalk, and it's all all of a sudden, all of those different um voices and modules in your brain are kind yeah. of all at one time <laughs> talking to you, and and. Uh, kind of arising in your consciousness um, all at once. It's- yeah, that's right, which is interesting because a lot of people think intuitively, oh, when you're daydreaming, that's the default network, but it's not quite that. So the default network, just for people who aren't neuroscience nerds, it's this network of brain areas that includes areas in the kind of back middle parts of the brain, like the parietal lobes, middle parts of the parietal lobes. Uh, the hippocampus is actually part of this network too, and they interact very closely. And, uh, but the kind of more cortical components, like in the parietal lobes, are active during all kinds of tests. You ask somebody to remember their 16th birthday, 
hippocampus default network active. You ask people, imagine what's going to happen on your 60th birthday. Same networks are active. You ask people now um, to, let's say, figure out how you would get from point A to point B in the neighborhood you grew up in, La Crosse, let's say, and you activate that same network. Mm -hmm. And you can go on task after task that seem to have nothing to do with each other, and you activate this network. Now, just because the network's activated during all these tasks doesn't mean it's the same thing. But one of the things that struck me was the idea that basically we're constantly, just like in the example of the feminist bank teller, we're constantly trying to create little models in our head, which says like, here's how A is related to B and how B is related to C. And we relate them in space, we relate them in time, and we relate them in situations. And we could do that when we're recovering a memory and you're trying to remember hey, what was it that happened yesterday after the stand-up science show that I did? And you try to piece it together. You do this detective work to try to come up with what happened. And you start to go, oh, yes, well, I was after the show, so I probably had a drink. And so I must have been at the bar, and it's likely someone was talking to me. And you start to pull all these things up, right? And you make all these inferences about things that you don't know, but they were likely to have happened, right? Now, that same stuff is kind of the infrastructure it's the like the foundation for all of our specific episodic memories because you don't have to worry about all the regular things that happen when you do let's say a stand-up science show you can tack on to that little structure of things that could happen what specifically happened in this event at this time and place right so that ability to pick up the structure across different events now helps you pick up new events because you don't have to build up so much in that model the next time. The model's basically there, and you just tack on little details to it. And so what we think the default network is doing is giving us this ability to kind of pull up a little model of what is happening right now, what's likely to happen in the future, based on what happened in the recent past. Mm. And it's doing this in concert with the hippocampus that's saying, well, this is generally what's likely to happen, but in this specific instance, here's exactly what's happening and tack that on. So your memory of what happens today is different from your memory of what happens in tomorrow's show. Hmm. And so there's this kind of dance between kind of keeping things sorted in memory according to where and when they happen, which we think that the hippocampus is more important for, versus keeping memories sorted as a function of the gist of kind of like, you know, what was the situation? Was it a podcast? Was it a stand-up comedy show? Was it, you know, a band practice for me or something? Was it I'm giving a lecture? And that's the organizing principle for the default network, we think. Hmm. And so, um, uh, but there's this interplay between them, especially during sleep, where you get like the memories for these specific instances being used to say, hey, here's some new things that could happen in a podcast situation you know, that are different from what we thought before. And the new in information gets incorporated with the old knowledge that way. So would you say that there's individual differences in this particular region that would be leading to differences in people's predictive power, their memory, their creativity, yeah. uh, all, all of these. It, it seems like this, this would be a major player in intelligence, yeah. curiosity more broadly. It's, it's a really interesting question. In my field, cognitive neuroscience, we're generally terrible 
at understanding what makes people different from each other because we're so used to thinking of what's something that is common across you and me, right? But I have this idea, and I think it's probably, I'm not the first person to think of this, but it relates to all the things which we've been talking about, which is how much does something have to deviate before we go, that's surprising, that's a little prediction error, I should take note of this, right? I mean, in general, nothing is exactly as we think it's going to be, right? There's always variance in the world. But some people, a little blip is enough to drive their curiosity or enough to make them scared. And other people, it takes a lot before they go, yeah, this is just, you know, they're normally just like, yeah, it's all the same. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot for them to break out of that pattern we're talking about. And that's related to curiosity, but it's also related to updating our knowledge base, right? Because how much do you want to be able to go, okay, here's my hometown. I know where to park. I know all the good places to find parking for my car. How much do you want to update that knowledge base based on one instance of finding the perfect parking spot, right? Some people might go, yeah, that's a really good spot. I'm going to go there again tomorrow. Other people, their brains might not even register that as a good parking spot because you just got lucky once, but it's not the general rule. So Mm. there's this act. It's it's actually a really interesting question. Uh, There's a guy named Steve Grossberg who talks about this. It's called the stability plasticity dilemma. And so everybody talks about neural plasticity, the ability to change brains, you know, with experience. Like it's a great thing, right? But if the brain's always changing, you're constantly, you know, the world is a moving target, right? You, yeah. You don't want to always change. You want to have some stability. <laughs> yeah. And so if there's, I, yeah. I've had, you don't know this about me, but my listeners do. I've, I've had, uh, I've, I've had some uh, various psychiatric episodes in my life where I've had some instability issues. And, uh, and little bouts of mania and uh, even a little psychosis. And it is, uh, not a fun thing to be like relearning how all of life works, um, all over again. Yeah. And, uh, and even though it's very, my brain's very placid, uh, uh, plastic at those moments, yeah. it's, uh, it's not very functional. Yeah. 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 And, but it, it's that, you know, in, in manic states, for instance, in the moment, you're flipping around from topic to topic, right? Mm. But, and I don't know, we don't know about whether or not people's brains are, or at least I don't know about whether people's brains are more plastic in those states or not. Mm. But imagine if, even if you're constantly stable right now, yeah, everything that happens, you just decided, I'm going to imprint this as the new perfect thing, you know? Right. There's sometimes where that's really good, like faces, for instance. If I see you a year from now and you look a little different, I should just completely update my mental representation of your face to that moment Mm. and wipe out everything from the past. But I don't. What usually happens is you kind of keep a little bit of a running average. So then every time you see somebody, wow, they look a little bit older than what I expected, you know? Hmm. And it's rare to kind of go like, oh, you look younger than I thought, you know. That is it's fascinating that the the your mental representations of people do age in in your mind, in your mind's eye and every I've had dreams of people that have like passed away or I haven't seen in a number of years and in the dreams they are not where I last saw them. They That's have right. aged 
perfectly like accordingly to to that like uh, you know if it's been five years or whatever yeah in the dream they appear to me to be five years older than the last time that i saw them oh that's really interesting yeah isn't it i thought uh, i I mean it's only happened a couple times yeah yeah i thought i was like I don't know. It's creeped me out a little bit when when that happens. Yeah, know, but I, usually when you see people that you haven't seen from a long time, do you kind of are you usually? Surprised I'm, I'm not saying you know it's not that like I'm dreaming, yeah. so it's not necessarily an accurate representation of yeah. what they would look like now. Yeah. The, but but it is interesting to me that my brain is making estimates uh, yeah. about their aging and then creating this. Well, and that may well be how the brain, you know, during sleep, for instance, during REM sleep, when you're dreaming, that maybe we just had a conversation about this is that maybe how the brain starts pulling out these generalities and kind of finding connections. And it may be that's kind of giving you this, you know, kind of evolving sense of who these people are. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is totally speculative and no data on this whatsoever. But um, but the the you know. So I gave you an example of a case where you want to be totally plastic, but there's other cases where you want everything to be stable and you don't want to change your mental representations very easily. You know, you win once in a game of roulette, unlikely to get that, you know, same number that you picked. 36 every time. Every time. Exactly. Right. You know, and so that's a case where you don't want to update your knowledge base that almost always when I gamble, I lose, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's the dilemma. And I think some people may be tweaked more towards when something different happens, they just grab onto it and some, and, you know, they change and other people, it takes a lot before they change. You know, I think that may be a state a personality trait. We don't know this. This is kind of a hypothesis that we're working on right now, but, uh, I mean, I think that's got to be related to memory. And we all know some people have a very kind of, they see the world as predictable and boring, you know, Mm -hmm. and some people see the world as everything's changing. It's all dynamic. And many of us are in between, you know. I like to imagine like a baby who's born just like so over it. Just like a hipster, it's like, oh, I get it, whatever, <laughs> alive, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I do wonder how, uh, the 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 point I'm making is, yeah. I, I wonder how much of this is It is definitely changes over development, to, too. Uh, you know, how how much of uh, environmental influence of if, if you're, if you're, you know, if your parents are traveling a lot mm-hmm. and you're you're constantly in these new and stimulating environments, if that is creating these big personality differences mm-hmm. later on in life, I would imagine that it is. And you know, I, I know it's a false dichotomy of the nature versus nurture yeah. um, thing, but but there there's still there there has to be a little bit of that in, in yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I think that you know these factors probably changed over the course of development. Um, one of the things we found is the effects of curiosity on memory seem to be intact as people get older. But we do know that the... Wait, wait, what do you mean by that? Meaning that if, like, we've done this trivia question experiment in older people, and they show as much, even though they don't remember as much, they show as much of a benefit from being curious as younger people do. Mm-hmm. But what we don't know is, is it as easy to get them into a curious state? What we think is that as people get older, the dopaminergic system becomes a little less excitable, a little it functions a little more poorly. Mm. On the other hand, I don't know about the dopaminergic system, but children in general, there's a lot of brain plasticity going on. And so, you know, you may see differences in this ability to kind of pick up from single instances based on 
you know, that where you are in the developmental trajectory, you know, mm. I think, uh, actually you mentioned mania and you definitely, ins- I mean, there's a school of thought that says that psychosis is very much related to, um, this prediction error concept. So I've actually got a whole line of work on schizophrenia and one of the things Mine's like I, I've had mania, which caused me to not sleep for a number of days, which yeah. then led to little bits of psychosis. Yeah. Yeah. And for many people, it's not full blown, but you know, sometimes mm. when people have a manic episode, they become paranoid and they start yeah. to develop these beliefs that aren't rational, so to speak. And well, what's interesting, at least from my experience is that I, I have a large majority of me is still plenty logical and, and rational and yeah. and knows that little bit of delusion is delusion. Yeah. But there's this part that's like, well, if it is true. Yeah. And the, and the, the paranoia is like the cost involved in like the sliver of a chance that that happens to be true triggers such a high emotional yeah. state that it overrides some of that those logical systems. That's right. That's right. And, you know, there's different theories on this. And one theory is, is that, you know, there's in general an overexcitability of the brain. Mm-hmm. in uh in mania and also possibly in schizophrenia you know some of what we're studying is the flip side of it like in schizophrenia for instance people have cognitive deficits their memory is one of the worst things that's affected so people think of schizophrenia they think a beautiful mind or something and that is part <laughs> of it but it's like sure. to me you give medications and a lot of that stuff gets treated it doesn't go away but a lot of it gets treated um, but one of the things that's left over, if you talk to anybody with schizophrenia, you could see this is their thinking, their memory is affected. Some people it's really bad. Some people it's not so bad, but in general it's affected. And we've been documenting this kind of these memory deficits for a while. And one of the things that people seem to have a real problem with is remembering, let's say, the order and time with which things happened or the relative relationships in space of where things were and something that they study or being able to pull up, Hey, here's this thing that I studied and here was what the context in which I studied this thing. In other words, pulling up the right connections and cutting out the wrong connections. And one of the findings that we're getting is, is that this is related to dysfunction of the hippocampus and this other area that you probably heard a lot about is the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex is thought to kind of regulate this ability to be able to go. These are the right things that you need to focus on. And, you know, let's not worry about the other things given this context. This is kind of the most likely stuff to focus on. And when you say don't sleep for a few days, five days or whatever, terrible for the prefrontal (laughs) cortex. It's just basically like getting a lobotomy, you know? Mm. So that that is that's an interesting question too why that happens but you know one of the things we found is is that patients with schizophrenia show a deficit in rhythmic electrical patterns of brain activity so that's another thing we do in the lab is we record electrical activity in addition to looking at what areas of the brain light up one of the things we find if you record electrical brain activity for instance from uh people what you find is it's not all over i mean it is looks like it goes all over the place at times but what you could see is there's these rhythms there's these patterns and um basically we call them oscillations but they're kind of these rhythmic changes kind of like you know if you think of a sine wave or something like uh or like you know if i'm singing and i sing i don't sing this well but if i could hold one note or if i play a piano key and get one note there's like a main frequency that's carrying that sound right Mm. and 
uh, in this in that same way, when we record electrical brain activity, there's these certain frequencies that the brain likes to oscillate at, these certain rhythms that it likes to produce. Mm-hmm. And we think, and this is we weren't the ones who came up with this hypothesis, but we think these oscillations help brain regions kind of talk to each other and kind of maintain a conversation such that it's like if you and I are talking to each other and we have a particular conversational rhythm, and somebody comes in and starts popping words in, you know, from a distance, and they're not picking up on the breaks in our conversation, then they're not being heard. They're going to be tuned out of the conversation. And so if we maintain this rhythm, we're kind of doing the call and response in sync with each other. And some people argue that communication is all about that, is maintain and training brain rhythms in other people. But these brain rhythms are also important for all sorts of things, and they happen at different frequencies and there's some frequencies that are fairly low, like what we call the theta rhythm. And that means that you've got areas of the brain working in a fairly long time scale with each other, right? Um, and what that may be allowing you to do is be able to have these areas of the brain, like the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex, talk to each other in real time. And we find that in patients with schizophrenia, those rhythms get disrupted. So as a result, it's like the brain's a little bit functionally disconnected so that, you know, we're not able to maintain that call and response for brain regions, so to speak, if I grossly oversimplify this, mm-hmm. that um, as a result, we're not, we're out of sync with each other and we're not able to pass information between each other as efficiently. Hmm. And so that's kind of, uh, that's why we think it's important to not only look at where things are happening, but when things are happening and, to look at the time scale of brain activity in general. Hmm. That's very cool. Um, all right. So, all right. Uh, so, so we don't need to do a part three. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> first I, I forgot to have you plug a charity of your choice. Um, yesterday or last episode, uh, do you, do you have two? You want you want to throw two out there? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to stay local on this, uh, but sure. because those are the ones that I tend to give local, I guess, but, yeah. uh, uh, we have one called the short term emergency aid committee so it's like steak but with a c instead of with instead of like a k mm-hmm. and or i guess they call it steak i don't know but this is basically it's a group that gives money to families in need but it could be i need to pay a utility bill need food need i don't know suit for a job interview or something like that but it's not like you know it's basically that kind of it's a charity that people can turn to when they're just kind of when they're desperate and they need something and it's just a little helping hand to keep people aflo- keep families afloat, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's been one that uh, you know, uh, especially people in my department, we like to do something for them every year. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah. There's another one which we which is the UC Davis Student Pantry, and that's uh, you know I actually uh, one of the cool things about UC Davis, aside from I'll just give this plug, we have one of the top five, if not the top three memory research communities in the world, actually. Mm. Um, uh, it's, you know, we're kind of a hidden gem in the world of science in that sense, and neuroscience in general. But in, one of the other great things about being at UC Davis is the students are great. But we also have a huge proportion of our students who come from rural backgrounds. Many of them are poor first-generation college students. And, you know, I actually recently learned about this after you were telling me, hey, do some research and some charities. And it turns out a lot of our students literally skip meals because they can't afford them. 
And uh, so there's this uh, um, thing that we have called the student pantry, which basically gives money for food, school supplies, things like that for people who can't afford it. They need something, you know, they need food to study. And, you know, you don't want them to make the choice between having to study and, you know, basically starve or, you know, right. Right. So, um, or eating and, you know, not eating, I guess. So that's another thing. Well, that sounds terrific. And uh, one more... uh, Okay, for silly question, which Seinfeld character would make for the best neuroscientist? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Oh man, that's a good question. Are you going? Are you going the top four, or are you gonna do like a uh, a side character like Newman or something like? that? I was thinking like Newman would be the Nazi. wild card that I would play. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I would have to say Kramer. Because, you think Kramer would be Yeah, okay. okay. Well, now, we know about the real Kramer's crazy st- stand-up comedy. Sure, life, sure. Which we don't want to get into that stuff. No, the character. The character the, Kramer, the character yeah. Kramer. So the character Kramer is like, he's constantly trying new things. Right. And he's going outside of the box, and he's pushing the envelope of like, let me drive this electric car and see how, or I think it was electric car, I can't remember. It's like, let's see how far I can go on a single tank of gas or something like that. And That's the kind of mind that it, it takes to make some breakthroughs. I think so. Yeah. I think <laughs> you have to be willing to kind of take a chance and roll the dice sometimes. Yeah. And you don't want to see things the way everybody else sees the world. And I think that's true in neuroscience as well as many other areas of science. Um, well, that was, you know what? I'm just going to end there because that <laughs> was, I was, I was like, here's a silly question. And then you actually had just a really good answer for, <laughs> for a, a silly question. So that's as good a point as any to end. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. And, and thanks to your listeners for holding out for two whole episodes. Oh man, I'm sure they loved it. Believe me, I wouldn't have, I, I wouldn't have had you out a second time if it <laughs> wasn't going this well. This is a terrific conversation. So thank you, Tryon, for joining me and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious as i say every time thanks for being such curious people it's a very important trait and you guys are terrific thank you Guys, I'm going to do a bonus episode this week. It's just going to be just me talking to you. I wanted to do this episode for a long time. Skip it if you want or you're not interested or you don't think it's good. It's not that big. It's a little something different. Not uh, required listening. It's just going to be a, a background um, about me and my journey here. I kind of want to just give some of a background of how this podcast started and how I got started, how I got started in comedy and where I'm trying to go with things and just answer a lot of kind of the frequently asked questions that I get um, asked from journalists or like people, uh, people ask after shows and that sort of thing. So, um, so tune into that if you want to. No big deal, but do make sure and tune in. That's just a bonus episode. Next week's regular episode will be with uh, Oval Cesar, and she fanta- She was on Stand Up Science in Raleigh, but our podcast was terrific. She does a lot of stuff about when you, like the ways in which people try to elevate 
themselves like in a social status kind of way but but fail like um humble bragging or um passive aggressiveness or um backhanded compliments or mansplaining that sort of thing uh those kind of topics really terrific conversation so make sure and tune in for that it's wonderful and um, again, Libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. It's the same audiobooks at the same price as other audiobook companies. However, this one partners with local indie bookstores. There's like some multiple, uh, don't quote me on this, like seven or 900 some like pot, uh, bookstores that they work with. And you find the one near you or from your hometown or wherever that you want to support and you support that bookstore it goes it's being downloaded through them so like the email and everything that you're getting is from your local bookstore and they are getting a split of the of the profits from it and with the offer code here we are you get three months for the price of one and that goes to me you're so you're supporting me and this show and Michael Meditations uh, next January, my other partnership. Uh, really looking forward to that. Trying to plan out, um, trying to skip next winter. Winter just kills me, guys. Man, I have been in such a great mood and so positive and getting in shape and like feeling I'm productive and balanced and just. Oh my God, and winter was, I just lost months of productivity. I was so miserable, and it seems like that just gets worse every year. So I'm trying to skip winter. One of the many reasons why I chose January for next year, um, but it's already, oh, by the way, it's already starting to fill up. There's been like, a, 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 it's not even officially for sale yet. They, they haven't figured out the exact price range and everything. But we're close, uh, close to doing that, and there's already been like at least five or six pretty serious inquiries uh, that that are like probably for sure going to make it, and then um, and then several more, and and I think there's going to be a room for about 15. So this would be awesome if it could all be here. We are listeners at a certain point. Um, if we don't fill it, we'll have to open it up to the general public as well. But but for right now, it's just going to be people that are like into science and these sorts of conversations. Doing mushrooms in Jamaica and having fantastic conversations and working through stuff. Bettering ourselves. Oh, getting sun. Getting exercise. Doing a bunch of beach workouts last time. And a whole huge, basically private beach. There's, I mean, it's open to the public, but no one's on it. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. Go to Michael Meditations and just go through, watch some of the testimonials um, from from people. And I mean, I'm, I'm just really happy to be uh, a part of it. I think it's something really really special uh, and it's the only place in the world where you can have an experience like this and you can do it with me how awesome is that that'd be fun um so think about that and then what else do i need to plug go to stitcher 
You can hear this ad free and you can hear all the past episodes. Um, by the way, if you aren't using Stitcher, I'm going to open up 10 past episodes. Um, 10 of my favorite past episodes that will be available. So if you're new to the show and you listen on some other device, uh, check in and that should be available uh, now. At least at least 10 of my favorite past episodes should be available. So that's something for you. But head on over to Stitcher, get their premium account. It's way worth it. Stitcher is awesome. So uh, that's about it, guys. Thank you all for listening all the way to the end. I like when you guys write me and you come to the shows and you're like, I'm one of the people that comes <laughs> that listens all, all the way to the end. I'm one of the favorites. Oh, that you are. And I appreciate the support. So thank you all. I hope you have a, a wonderful week and get an audiobook. Learn some more uh, new interesting things. All right, terrific. See ya. Guys, I almost forgot. That's what I was trying to think of. Today's outro music is brought to you by Charn's Brand. Here Knows When. Check them out. They're real good. Hereknowswhen.bandcamp.com And you can always find new indie music on the Jimmy Fro Indie Music Podcast. Podcast.